For those of you who may be worshiping with us for the first time today, we are in a summer series called Lifelines, and we are taking the favorite passages of Scripture as selected by this congregation, and the top ones, and then I'm preaching from it, or whoever's preaching that day is preaching from that passage. And we're in the book of Micah. Now, be honest, how many of you knew that there was a book of Micah before you walked in here this morning and heard about it? Okay, it's just not one of those books that stands out much in our mind. We, we don't spend a lot of time in Micah. We don't spend a lot of time in the prophets uh, in general. And, and Micah particularly gets overshadowed by Isaiah, whose ministry uh, was at the same time. Uh, Isaiah was, was a man of the city. Uh, Micah was a, was a country guy. Uh, Isaiah was of royal descent. He preached in the palace Micah preached in the pasture lands out in, out in the countryside. Uh, Isaiah was, was a prolific writer. Uh, his is the longest book in, in, in the prophets. Micah, on the other hand, wrote a mere seven chapters in comparison. Isaiah prophesied the virgin birth. Micah, the village birth. When the wise men came to find the newborn king, they ask of the scribes in Jerusalem, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And they turn to the book of Micah, and in Micah is the answer. We read this in Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. It is Micah that tells us that Jesus will be born in the city of of Bethlehem. But for all the differences, <clears throat> perhaps it is Micah who in the most simple and succinct fashion, some of the most profound words spoken by and recorded by the prophets appear in the book of Micah. They are not just required reading, they are required living for us. And it boils down into a handful of words, easy to remember, what it is that God requires of us, what it is that makes up a godly life. Now, why is it that we don't spend much time in the prophets? Well, I think there's probably a lot of reasons. Sometimes they are hard to understand. You read through the prophets, and you'll get to the end of a chapter, and you think, I have no idea what I have just read. Isn't that true? And sometimes I think we don't enjoy the prophets because we don't understand the nation of Israel 2,700 years ago when Isaiah and Micah were writing. And sometimes, sometimes we don't read and study the prophets very often because it seems like the prophets were kind of grouchy, sarcastic, and negative preachers. I mean, after all, we like happy sermons today, and that's just not what we see in, 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 the, uh, in the prophets. Uh, for instance, uh, Micah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Listen, listen to how Micah preaches. He says, Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan and like flesh for the pot. Yuck. That's a little over the top, don't you think? That's a little much. My goodness. How, how long would you listen to my sermons if I always started out, listen here, you bunch of thugs, cutthroats, and cannibals, you lovers of evil and haters of good? You'd probably go to some other friendlier environment, and I really wouldn't blame you for doing so. Now, why did the prophets preach like that? Why was there almost this intensity 
uh, in them that just was so graphic in nature. I think part of it was that they, they had a huge job of trying to bring God's people back. They were trying to get the attention of the people. They had fallen so far away from where God was calling them that the prophets were trying to pull them back to where God wanted them to be. They were falling more in love with a broken world than they were loving a benevolent God. John Ortberg says, it, it's like a person with perfect pitch being in the company of those who are tone deaf. In, in other words, your ears hurt if you've got perfect pitch when you're singing with people who can't carry a tune in a bucket. Some of you experienced that just a few minutes ago here in the pew. <laughs> don't look, don't point, that's not nice. Those who are tone deaf don't realize they're tone deaf. And when they sing with abandon, they don't realize that how they're singing isn't the real tune. If you have perfect pitch, your ears hurt because you understand. If you're musically sensitive, you can't stand it. You, you know how the song is supposed to go. You know how beautiful it can be. You know how far off it is. Now imagine, imagine that you never escape that. When we're in church, it only lasts a few minutes. But what if you were around tone-deaf people singing all the time and you had perfect pitch? It'd drive you nuts. That's God. When it comes to spiritual matters, God has perfect pitch he knows how life should go. He knows how beautiful life can be. He knows how far off it is in our lives because of the sin in our life. And he desperately wants this spiritually tone-deaf people of his to get it right. So, that he, so he sent his prophets to the nation of Judah to proclaim life's true melody, to pull them back home, to sing to the glory of God. You see, Micah here is trying to get the attention of a nation who has lost their way and didn't seem to care that they'd lost their way, who had turned their backs on God's standards and lived according to the popular ideals of the day, who as a people were on the verge of losing their God-given distinction because they only wanted to be like the rest of the world around them. Sound familiar? We are not the nation of Israel. But we, the church, are the people of God. And sometimes we have lost our way. Sometimes, like the nation of Israel, we just want comfortable, happy preaching. We too may be in danger of forgetting the basics of our faith, the reason for our existence, and our ability to make a genuine difference in this world. And out of Micah comes this incredible spiritual insight. This is one of the most profound statements that you'll find in the prophets of the Old Testament. God has made it clear what he requires of us. And you find it succinctly said in verse 8. This is Micah's lifeline. But to understand verse 8, you have to start in verse 6 because the question is being asked here in verse 6, well, what is it that God wants from me? What should I bring to God? And so listen as we begin in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? Now notice how it builds. 
Bird offerings is something that anybody could bring. A year-old calf for a sacrifice? Well, that's only something a rich person could buy. A thousand rams? Only a king would be wealthy enough to afford that kind of a sacrifice. 10,000 rivers of oil? Nobody, nobody could give that. The prophet goes on. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see, he's asking the question that all the rest of the nations around Israel and Judah practiced in that day and time. All of them practiced human sacrifices, some way of appeasing and pleasing the gods. Never did God ask for human sacrifice on our parts. There is an unspoken but resounding, no, that's not what he wants, because the next verse is what Micah tells us. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In one simple statement, Micah spells out three things that anyone and everyone can bring to God. Are you bringing them? Let's take a look at the first one. To act justly, to do justice. In one sense, justice is getting what somebody deserves. You're speeding down the road, and a police officer uh, pulls you over, says you were speeding, I know I was speeding, he gives you a ticket, that's justice. You get what you deserve. You break the law, you suffer the penalty. That's justice. Most of the time, we like justice. And we like stories of justice. This one is a classic. A U.S. soldier who had been fighting in Iraq received a Dear John letter from his girlfriend. Now, that's heartbreaking enough. You're on the field of battle. You're serving your country and your your girlfriend back home sends you a Dear John letter and breaks up with you. But, but this girl had the audacity to ask him to send back the pictures that she gave him before he left on duty because she needed to use it to put in the paper as her engagement picture to her new fiancé. Uh, he's just devastated. And uh, when, the, when the other guys in the platoon heard about his situation... Um, they all gave him a picture of their girlfriends to which he added his picture of his now ex-girlfriend, put them in a package, and mailed them to her with this note. I'm sending back your picture as requested. Please remove it and send the rest back to me. For the life of me, I can't remember which one you are. <laughs> We love a story like that, don't we? <laughs> oh, man, all right. That, that's justice in our mind. Actually, that borders on revenge, uh, truth be known. But, but for us, that's, that's justice. All right, you know, something wrong happened, something right, it was, it was all put together. When you look at, at the word justice here in, in Scripture, when, when Micah says, act justly, do justly, uh, among your people. It isn't so much this, I need to even the score kind of justice. It's more of a, I need to right the wrongs of culture kind of justice. This is something that when I look at what's wrong, I need to find a way to help try and improve it. 
It's not something that we merely talk about. It begins with us doing the right thing in our own personal lives. And that's what I think we forget sometimes is that when we act justly, it begins right here in my own heart, my own life, my own mind, my own actions. I have to live right. I cannot try to right a wrong if I'm not living to the best of my ability by God's standards to begin with. And God has commanded to act justly or to do justice requires a moral basis for understanding right from wrong, which is part of the reason why he gave us his, his word. We live in a world where injustice, large and small, goes on every day, everywhere. Micah asks the question, what does God require of you? He says, well, it is to act justly. It is to make sure that justice is done, to be an agent of justice. Now, we can't correct all of the injustice in the world, but we can do something. Don't just throw up your hands and say, well, I can't change it all, so I won't change anything. That's not an answer. I can open my eyes to what's happening around me. I can learn what's going on in life. I can begin to make a difference in my neighborhood my home, my classroom, my office place, wherever you are, you can begin to reshape. You can help right the wrongs if you don't stick your head in the sand. We won't change everything, but we have to try to do our best. Gene Sibilis wrote this, pay no attention to what a critic says. A statue has never been erected in honor of a critic. You might be criticized if you try something, but if you never try, you won't do anything. And if you don't do anything, you won't act justly. Micah says, this is what the Lord requires of you. Act justly. Do justice in this world. Second thing is, he says, love mercy. Now, in one sense, mercy is the opposite of justice. You know, whereas justice is you get the ticket for speeding, when you are speeding and you get caught and the police officer issues you a warning, you really deserved a ticket, but he only gives you a warning, that's mercy. You didn't get what you deserved. Sometimes mercy in the scripture is translated loving kindness. That may be easier for us to get a handle on. Why should this be merciful, love, mercy be important to us? Well, let me ask you this question. How did the birth of Jesus Christ change this world? Now, there's a lot of right answers to that question, I understand. You know, he changed it in, in tremendous ways. But historian Rodney Stark argues that there was one huge factor that helped capture the attention of the ancient world. Jesus Christ and subsequently his church, Christianity's revolutionary emphasis was on mercy. Stark writes that in the midst of the squalor, misery, illness, and anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. And it all started with Jesus. In contrast to the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers of that day, mercy, did you know this? Mercy was regarded as a character defect. And pity was a pathological emotion. And the reason was because they believed so much in justice. Mercy was something that you got without it being earned, which is the very heart of mercy. And the, and the ancient world didn't like that. Look how the mercy extended to us, the loving kindness extended to us through Jesus Christ has transformed our world. 
Now, there's a precarious balance between justice and mercy. A person who is all about justice can seem harsh and judgmental. A person who, can, who, who seems all about mercy can seem lenient and spineless. But God is perfectly just and God is perfectly merciful all at the same time. You see, they are a tremendous balance and they both rest on this concept of a moral code of right and wrong. And I think at times in our culture today, we have undermined true mercy, true loving kindness with a misunderstood or misplaced virtue that we now call tolerance. A new tolerance, not like the old tolerance. Today's tolerance said, you must approve of what I do. But mercy responds, I must do something harder. I will love you even when your behavior runs contrary to God's word. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. But mercy responds, I must do something harder. I will tell you the truth because I'm convinced that the truth will set you free. Tolerance said, you must allow me to have my way. But mercy responds, I must do something harder. I will plead with you to follow God's way because I believe you are worth the risk of being mad at me for telling you. Tolerance seeks to be inoffensive. Loving kindness takes risks. Tolerance glorifies division. Loving kindness, mercy seeks unity. Tolerance costs nothing. Mercy costs everything. Ask Jesus at the cross. To be sure, sometimes we don't come across very merciful. I get that. Sometimes we get caught up in things and, and we just don't come across very merciful. This sign was seen posted on the front yard of a convent. Okay, convent. It said, absolutely no trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Signed, Our Sisters of Mercy. Sometimes we forget that we as Christians don't always convey that mercy and loving kindness. And here's what we miss. Being merciful to somebody else is a benefit to us. We often have this mistaken idea that if I want to be happy, if I want to find contentment in life, then I need to focus on myself. When actually, in, in truth, the opposite is just the truth. The, the more I invest in you, the greater my sense of contentment and joy. To be content, I don't have to satisfy my needs, but if I help satisfy yours, God has created us in such a way that it brings a sense of joy to us. There's an old Amish proverb that says, instead of putting others in their place, put yourself in their place. Focus your attention on mercifully meeting the needs of others and you'll discover that you are happier. This was posted in the volunteer center. If you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. If you want happiness for a lifetime, help someone else. Our lives are always more fulfilled when we extend loving kindness. Uh, it's already happened that the students are coming back. Some of them are returning students. Some of them are new students. There will be more in the next couple of weeks. A lot of our international students are already here in town, and, and, and we, we want to make all of our students feel at home here. I, I'm telling you if, you're, if you're one of our students from the past or if you're brand new and you're in town, we are thrilled to death that you're here. You make this place just so much richer by your presence among us, and, and we're delighted to have you here. But I want you to remember 
as you go out and you welcome new, new students who are in town, take special attention of those who are from someplace else around the world. Our global guests here in Bloomington have left home, culture, language, traditions, and may for the first time in their lives be away from home for any extended period of time in a place that is not familiar to them. Reach out. Extend loving kindness to those from someplace else around the world. Let them know that we want them to feel at home among us, that they can find this to be a second home if they will. Give them a smile. Give them a pat on the back. Ask them if they need some help. Do something that extends to them the mercy of Jesus Christ because I know what it's like to be in another place in the world where you've never been before, away from home and culture and language and family and to feel like you're the only one. It's the loneliest feeling in the world. And when somebody smiles and extends a gracious offer of loving kindness, it changes how you feel. And I will tell you something, our international students who come to Bloomington are so very gracious, their graciousness will warm your hearts more than you'll be able to help them in return. I'm just telling you, you've got the opportunity to make a difference right now by reaching out and extending loving kindness to those around us. And I'd like to be able to celebrate too with you some of the things that have been accomplished through your loving kindness here as a group. Sometimes we don't know all the things that are going on. It's hard to know everything that's going on, but let me share with you some of the things that through your merciful giving and your merciful actions have done to change the world. A hundred international students were taken to Walmart to shop for school supplies, just getting them there so they could shop. Over 80 students, were international students, were picked up this week at Indianapolis Airport for first transport to Bloomington by, by folks in this congregation. Uh, we, we've given funding to transport HIV-infected children to clinic appointments for medicine and for coaching in Swaziland. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, backpacks were filled with all kinds of school supplies down in the, the gymnasium area here of the church, and more than 610 Monroe County children received backpacks with school supplies that might not have had them otherwise because of you. Funds have been sent to uh, Rwanda Foundation to care for displaced Christians in Iraq whose lives are on the line. We, we are working on the possibility. I, I'm, I'm hoping and praying this works out. We're trying to get in contact with the right people that maybe, maybe we as a congregation can adopt a family, a Christian family who is whose life is on the line, and, and bring them here and sponsor them here and give them a new lease on life because their lives are in danger there. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be terrific if we could do that? More than a 1,000 pieces of furniture have been donated so far to the International Student Furniture Giveaway, which will occur uh, next weekend. Uh, at least 350 international, new international students, not ones from the past, but new international students will receive something. It won't fill a, a, a room, it won't fill an apartment, but it will be something to get them started with life in their new home, all free, all delivered, and we still need some volunteers to help with that. Funds were sent to the Asian Children's Mission to build a second story on a dorm for orphan girls uh, in Burma, what we call Myanmar right now. Tremendous effort just for these young ladies who have no family at all. 
Uh, we've given financial support for a Christian school with Missions of Hope, which is a part of the CMF, the Christian Missionary Fellowship Group of Missions in Annapolis that we support. This is in Nairobi, Kenya. This mission is serving over 15,000 kids who wouldn't have a chance to eat, to have any education, to have any Christian training without this mission. 15,000 in the slums of Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, we sent funds uh, recently to help put a roof on a church in Kenya. Um, Francis uh, Monzia, who is a former Sherwood Oaks International student, had been a part of the uh, International Coffee Hour, is back home. This is the church where he is working and serving, and uh, we helped support an effort to put a roof back on the church building there. Brad uh, received this note this week. Let me read just a part of it. It says, hello, Brad. Thank you so much for this. I'm humbled for such great support. I lack words to thank you, uh, brethren and Sherwood Oaks at large. My church is appreciative. We will keep you informed on the project projected progress. This is transformative and touching. May God bless and increase you and the rest of the brethren more. Amen. Yours in Christ's vineyard, Francis. Francis was a part of who we are. He was a part of this family, now back home, doing and serving the king there, and we're helping just a little bit. Acts of mercy and loving kindness along the way are little by little changing this world. Live your life to reach out and be merciful. Robin Williams' tragic death has been in the news most of, most of the week. I was appalled and dismayed to see that the Westboro Baptist Church is planning to picket his funeral. There is nothing Christian or merciful or lovingly kind about such a thing. What I have wondered all week long is this. Did anyone ever reach out to Robin Williams with the love of Christ? Did anyone, did, did anyone ever extend mercy to him in the name of Christ? Did anyone ever reach out with the gospel to him? I, I don't know, but I hope and pray that somebody did, and I hope he was receptive to the message because, you see, the greatest act of mercy you can ever do is to offer somebody the name of Jesus Christ, to teach them that he was merciful in dying for their sins. Last thing, walk humbly. I think Micah included this one because it's hard work to act justly, to do justice and to act mercifully, to do deeds of loving kindness, and in the same time not get all puffed up about it. Have you ever, have you ever known those Christians who do good jobs but they kind of look down their nose at you? Who are kind of condescending, well, you're not doing what I'm doing. You see, it, it, it's really easy to get kind of self-satisfied, to get all puffed up about the good things we are doing and so God says, you walk humbly with me. In your efforts to do justice, don't be a jerk. Walk humbly. In loving deeds of mercy, don't flaunt it. Walk humbly. Rick Warren wrote, he said, God's mercy to us is the motivation for showing mercy to others. Remember, you will never be asked to forgive someone else more than God has forgiven you. Have you ever stopped to think, folks, about the fact, what if God was just just with me? What if all God did was extend justice to me? 
If all I got was justice, I would be miserable. I would be lost. I would be hopeless, and so would you. We don't want God to deal with us on the basis of justice. We want God to deal with us on the basis of mercy, and aren't you glad that's what he does? That we get what we don't deserve, that we have life in his name, and if he has done that for us, who among us can walk any less than humbly with him? What do we have to boast about? What do we have to be haughty about? An axe has no right to boast about the number of trees it has cut down. It is but a tool. It is the woodcutter who purchases the axe, who swings the axe powerfully and accurately, who keeps the axe sharpened in oil so the work can be done effectively. How silly for the axe to boast of all it's accomplished. We are but a tool in the master's hand. He purchased us with his son's life. He uses us powerfully and accurately. He keeps us sharp so that our work can be done effectively. How silly for us to boast about what we can do. It is the master's work, and all we're doing is ex extending to the world the same mercy that he's extended to us. What does God require of us? The answer is pretty simple. Act justly, do justice. Love mercy, do deeds of loving kindness. Walk humbly with your God. The tougher question is this. Will we do it? When we walk out these doors in just a few minutes, will we be any different? Will we act any different? Will we live any different? Will we be more justice-oriented and more merciful in our actions than before we met Micah this morning?